I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my pleasure on behalf of the faculty, staff, and students of the school to welcome you to this, the third of our semester events in the Jepson Leadership Forum entitled, Does Democracy Work? Um, before I proceed, I'd like to recognize the faculty who have co-organized uh, this series, Thad Williamson, who many of you know, and Allison Archer, who's just in the, her second year at the Jepson School, and we're really glad that she's uh, stepped up to help us with this forum topic. Now it's my pleasure to introduce uh, a Jepson School student who in turn will introduce our speaker this e evening. Lena Tori Jan is a first-generation international student from Kabul, Afghanistan, who's double majoring, as many of the university students do, in leadership studies and in political science. In addition to her studies, and she's a junior in the Jepson School, Lena has served as the Women's Refugee Community in, uh, Integration Intern at the International Rescue Committee in Richmond, where she assists or has assisted newly arrived refugees and immigrants with cultural adjustments and suggestions for uh, studying courses such as English as a Second Language. She's currently interning with the Department of Restoration of Rights at the Secretary of the Commonwealth in Virginia. Uh, she serves also as head resident uh, with Res Life, and she's a student ambassador for Richmond World Affairs uh, Council. You can see she's very busy. Passionate about education and the basic rights of children, women, and minority groups, Lena hopes to become an ambassador with the United Nations after she completes graduate studies in international relations and foreign affairs. Please help me welcome uh, Lena to the stage. Thank you. Dr. Blanche Wiesen-Cook, Distinguished Professor of History and Women's Studies at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, has spent more than a quarter century of her life researching, writing, and talking about writer, visionary, activist, and former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Her biography spans three volumes and includes Eleanor Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, The Defining Years, and Eleanor Roosevelt, The War Years and After. In them, she portrays her subject as the most important woman in American political history. She joins us this evening to talk about Mrs. Roosevelt's legacy and its effect on democracy. She speaks widely on history, politics, and women's issues, and is deeply committed to the principle of greater dignity and security for all people. Her awards and recognition are many and include a Scholar of the Year Award from New York State Council of the Humanities and Los Angeles Times 1992 Book Prize for Biography. She has served on a wide variety of boards and committees related to her research and was a founding member of the Fund for Open Information and Accountability and the Women's Environment and Development Organization. Dr. Cook is a frequent contributor of reviews and columns in many newspapers and journals, and she has produced and hosted programs for Radio Pacifica and CUNY TV. She appears frequently on programs like Today's Show, Good Morning America, CSPN's Book Notes, 
and McNeil-Lair News Hour, where she participated in the joint PBS-NBC coverage of the 1992 Democratic National Convention. Her lecture today is presented as part of the James McGrath Burns Lectureship in Leadership Studies and Biography, made possible by Bank of America. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Dr. Blanche Wiesen-Cook. I'm so really moved to be here tonight with all of you and with, how many, where are the students? Are the students here? Some, ah, the students are in the back. Oh, <laughs> great. Well, I mean, it's just the Jepson School of Leadership. Lena is fabulous. Um, thank you. I want to say one word about James McGregor Burns, who was a great friend of mine. And one night over dinner when I was starting work, on Eleanor Roosevelt about 1982, he said, I have one piece of advice for you. Be bold. <laughs> and um, I've tried to be bold in the three volumes of Eleanor Roosevelt. And what I'd like to do is read a little bit from uh, the wrap-up introduction which really introduces us to Eleanor, Lady Greatheart, as some people called her, and discuss how she got that way, um, and then have a political commentary, and then open it to questions and answers and conversation, if that is okay with you. Um, I start the introduction with a quote from Claire Booth Luce, who was a really magnificent writer and journalist, the wife of Henry Luce, the founder of Time, Life, Fortune. Um, we became friends on the Bill Buckley Show. He liked to have starboard um, guests, and I, for about 10 years, was starboard on Bill Buckley's show with Claire Booth Luce. And at one point, I was, she asked me to write her biography, but then she didn't like what I wrote in my Eisenhower book, so that was the end of that. Um, but Claire Boothless, you never knew what she was going to say or what she would think. She was always surprising. And I was surprised when I discovered in 1952 she was really promoting Eleanor Roosevelt to be president. And this was after a lifetime of very interesting relationship. Eleanor, it started out when Eleanor Roosevelt was very mean in her review of Claire Booth Luce's play, The Women. And it's a not nice review, it's a mean review. And they got over that somehow, I don't know how. And then Eleanor Roosevelt wrote for Time, Life, Fortune, but then they became close. And in the end, uh, Claire, Claire Booth Luce wrote that Eleanor Roosevelt was among the world's best loved women for many reasons, but above all, no woman has ever so comforted the distressed 
or distressed the comfortable. <laughs> and I thought that was terrific. And then that was later, very end. Um, before that, in 1952, she said, if the Democratic Party were smart, it would nominate Eleanor Roosevelt for president, or at least vice president, but why not president? And Eleanor Roosevelt said, I would rather be chloroformed <laughs> than run for office. Um, and here we are in the School of Leadership. The question is, why not run for office? And Eleanor Roosevelt wanted other people to run for office, but she knew how unfree you are if you ran for office. And she wanted her freedom because she was, above all, a journalist. And um, I think of her as, above all, a writer. I mean, she wrote a column every day from 1936 to the end of her life. Imagine that. Um, and she had a radio program, and she wrote 29 books, and literally hundreds of articles in various journals, like 250. So she's a writer. That's how she spent most of her life, and she told many, many truths. Well, the other thing she did was she traveled around the world, around the country and around the world, and everywhere she went, she said to people, tell me, what do you want? What do you need? It was never top down. It was always, tell me, what do you want? What do you need? And she was an organizer. Um, she began in the 1920s with a team of really great uh, political activists, women political activists, who founded the Women's Committee of the Democratic Party, and the goal was to get everybody to vote. The goal was to end voter suppression. The, and, you know, Lena asked a couple of wonderful questions which reminded me, you know, what kept people from voting? Um, well, the poll tax, and Eleanor Roosevelt opposed the poll tax. As long as the poll tax existed, women didn't vote because their husbands voted. This is white women didn't vote because their husbands voted. Why should we pay two poll taxes? And then there was the literacy test. And here I am in Virginia where I failed the literacy test in 1963. I was teaching at Hampton uh, Institute, it was Hampton University, was then Hampton Institute, and about five of us found out where the polling place was to register to vote, 1963. Uh, I was two at the time, uh, just, just two. And we went to register to vote, and there was a literacy test. And all of us, all five of us, passed, did not pass, failed the literacy test. Well, how do PhDs or ABDs, all but dissertation from Harvard and Hopkins, because that's where we were from, fail literacy test? Well, we read the preamble to the Constitution, and when we finished reading it, the person in charge who didn't want anybody from that historically black college to pass the literacy test said, now what does that mean? 
And we said what it meant, and she said, no, it doesn't mean that, no matter what we said. And we all failed. That's how folks, I mean, that's voter suppression when there was, before there were all these new ways of voter suppression, right? Um, so there are the old ways of voter suppression and the new ways, and we have to organize door to door, block by block, community by community, just as Eleanor Roosevelt really told us how to do it. Um, how did she get that way? How did she get to be a woman from a, being a woman of privilege, uh, born into the Roosevelt family. Her uncle was Theodore Roosevelt. Um, they did have money, but I blame her, or I attribute her concern for people in want, in need, in trouble, all people, on the fact that her father, well, her mother died when Eleanor was eight. She essentially turned her face to the wall. And her father died when Eleanor Roosevelt was 10. He was only 34, and he died of alcoholism. And you really need to pause for a minute. How much do you have to drink to die at 34 of alcohol? I mean, you know, we're still here. Um, it's, it, it's really a shocking reality, and she spends the next few years, very lonely and miserable in her grandmother's home, uh, surrounded by aunts and uncles who are also alcoholic and drug addicted in various ways. And finally, she is liberated at the age of 15 and sent off to England to a great school, Allenswood, where she had a wonderful mentor Marie Souvestre, and if there are writers in the room, nobody has ever written a biography of Marie Souvestre. Are there writers in the room? Um, anyway, if you, you know, if you're bilingual in French, her papers are in French and they're in England, uh, but they're wonderful. We really need, and it was here at Allenswood where Eleanor Roosevelt became a leader among her classmates and Marie Souvestre understood that she was a brilliant writer, and she told Eleanor Roosevelt to be independent and bold. And it was really Marie Souvestre who encouraged her to become a writer. She also excelled in music and became proficient at the piano and the violin and demonstrated her gift for languages. She was uh, French-speaking before she was English-speaking, but then at Allenswood became proficient also in German and Italian. She danced and played games and enjoyed sports. And I was fascinated, it was kind of like I had an epiphany when I read Eleanor Roosevelt in 19, well, when she was 76, she wrote an article in which she said, the happiest day of her life. This is at the end of her life. The happiest day of her life was the day she made the first team at field hockey. <laughs> and that my epiphany was, oh, she liked knock down drag about sports, but 
Also, she was competitive, and that was very important to understand. Um, and once I did understand it, the evidence was really fun. Uh, she writes to her great friend, Esther Lape, I have earned as much with my columns this year, this is the end of the first year in the White House, I have earned as much on my columns this year as Franklin has earned as president. <laughs> so competition is a real thing, and it continues all through. Um, and Eleanor Roosevelt, informed by Marie Souvest, inspired by Marie Souvest, um, spent her life. Um, Marie Souvest had a motto: "Never be bored, and you'll never be boring." And so Eleanor Roosevelt filled her life with endless learning, passionate intensity, and. I have to say, Eleanor Roosevelt was easily bored, so one finds surprising romances. Um, you know, th romances don't last very long in, the, in these books, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, her great friend, Lady Stella Redding, who became director of the Women's Voluntary Service in wartime London, said that Eleanor Roosevelt's great love was for the people. They are her interest, her hobby, her preoccupation. Her every thought is for human beings. I believe that the basis of all her strength is in her profound interest in them and her readiness to share with them the agony of experience and the fulfillments of destiny. Um, I'm going to skip a whole bunch of things. Um, and talk about um, when Eleanor Roosevelt returned home from the Allenswood School at 18, she was really quite miserable, but very shortly after that, she met Franklin Delano Roosevelt, her second cousin, once removed, and their partnership was really one of the most amazing and generous partnerships in US history. Um, Lena asked, how come she's not even mentioned in various classes on leadership here at the Jepson School? Well, I can't answer that because if you read Eleanor Roosevelt's life, you see that she's responsible for many of the great speeches FDR gave and many of the movements FDR undertook and also, especially now when we're thinking a lot about a world of refugees and the need to rescue, um, we need to look at what she wanted him to do that in fact he didn't do, um, like rescue. Um, also, he was a Democrat. 
in the 1930s and the 1940s, and the Democratic Party was dominated by the Dixiecrats, as we now call them, the Southern uh, Democrats dominated the party. And so the effort to integrate um, the armed forces, for example, which Eleanor Roosevelt really uh, took on, the effort to get the various groups within the military um, into battle, the women flyers who she promoted, all of these things she was able to do, but there was a real opposition. And that opposition lasted for a very long time. Um, when I worked on my Eisenhower book, I was, I was astonished that blood plasma in the United States was segregated, black and white, Christian and Hebrew, until 1958, when Eisenhower, by executive order, sent a note to General Al Grunther, his buddy, who was then head of the Red Cross, saying, we're going to integrate blood plasma. And General Grunther wrote back saying, you can't do that. The South doesn't want integrated blood. And so Ike said, well then, the South won't get any blood. <laughs> Done, it's all red, said Ike. And, and there's that, this is the US until 1958, blood plasma. So Eleanor Roosevelt's early efforts are really quite extraordinary. And I do spend a little time um, on all of these issues. Um, uh, I'm trying to find. Don't go away. I had it here. Okay. In 1940, FDR gives a very great speech. We will have a liberal democracy or we will return to the dark ages. And somehow it feels like that should be a banner for this moment. We will have a liberal democracy. <laughs> or we will return to the dark ages. And Eleanor Roosevelt said, yes, indeed. And in 1943, she said, 1943, she said, it is time that we all begin to come to the idea of world thinking. World thinking. The US is in the war, and we have to think about what happens after this war. So we need world thinking to ensure a post-war economy of creativity, education, abundance, and full employment. And this was a theme that Eleanor Roosevelt introduced really very early in her very first speech against segregation. Um, it's really interesting. It occurs in volume two, 11 April, 1934. The teachers 
of the United States condemn segregation at a big national educators convention. And Eleanor Roosevelt strides onto the stage and supports that anti-segregation resolution and says, I'm sorry, did I say 11 April? It was 11 May, 1934, and says to deny any part of a population the opportunity for more enjoyment in life, for higher aspirations, is a menace to the nation as a whole. There has been too much concentrating wealth, and even if it means that some of us have got to learn to be a little more unselfish about sharing what we have, we must realize it will profit us all in the long run. The day of selfishness is over. The day of really working together has come. All of us, regardless of race or creed or color, we must wipe out any feeling of intolerance, of belief that any one group can go ahead alone. We must recognize that we will all go ahead together or we will all go down together. And of course, today as poverty, inequality, neo-slavery appears across the United States, as women and children are condemned to bondage and refugees are in flight worldwide, ER's words, um, must embolden us, her prescience must embolden us. James McGregor Burns Presente, we need all of us to be bold. There's one historical fact that um, I would like to say, and that is that Eleanor Roosevelt um, really understood the importance of, I mean, she says in 1943, it is time for us to have global thinking. And that's a year before, that's um, a year before Wendell Wilkie writes after, you all know Wendell Wilkie, yes? I mean, he runs against FDR in 1944. And they become, no, 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 1940. And they become friends. And FDR sends him around the world where he has an epiphany. Everything that happens anywhere affects everybody, everywhere. We are all connected, one world. And this notion that we have to see us as all connected is so important as Eleanor Roosevelt after FDR's death in 1945 is in Europe for the United Nations. Harry Truman sends her there and she visits DP camps. Um, she visits with refugees. She understands that the United Nations has got to be organized to support the needs of everybody everywhere. And I think the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is for Eleanor Roosevelt um, 
our greatest legacy, but the entire structure of the United Nations is so important to her vision and to, and to our vision. And there's been a great movement away from the United Nations and a kind of movement away from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, which most of the world has uh, ratified, but the United States has ratified only in part the civil and political covenant. Um, and I do want to mention Eleanor Roosevelt's, because this is a leadership, a school for leadership, Eleanor Roosevelt's incredible diplomacy, her incredible diplomacy, so that she didn't much like the Soviet delegation, and she was a vigorous anti-Soviet, anti-communist, but we need to speak with our enemies. We need to understand each other. We need to empathize and care about each other. And so she would have these dinner parties for the Soviet delegation, but not just dinner parties. She then would take them to concerts and operas that she knew they would really enjoy, and they became friends. Friendly enough not to veto the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They abstained but they didn't vote against it, which is really very important. Um, I've been a little obsessed lately with Eleanor Roosevelt's FBI file when I think about what I want to do next. Um, John Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, hated Eleanor Roosevelt. And he collected, when I was chair of the Fund for Open Information and Accountability. We had a wonderful case in 1988 called the American Friends Service Committee versus Webster, and we got all the FBI files declassified. And I got hundreds of thousands of files and papers, including Eleanor Roosevelt's file, which goes on for 4,000 pages. And what it includes is Eleanor Roosevelt's work. It starts with about 1919, 1921, when she wanted, she worked with Esther Lape to get the US into that un-American body, the world court. And so her work for the world court and the League of Nations is a very big part of the early part of her FBI file. Then it goes on everything she did for civil rights, everything she said against segregation, every speech, every article, every friend, Virginia Durr, Anne Braden, all the great civil rights heroes, their correspondence with Eleanor Roosevelt, it's all in her FBI file. And then Hoover has little notes on the side calling her that ugly fat woman and things like that, that fat moron. Um, it's really disgusting, in my opinion, in my opinion, I teach police officers, they wear guns to class, so I say in my opinion, in my opinion, whenever I say anything controversial, but it's really amazing. What was an American in Hoover's America? Civil rights, human rights, freedom dignity for all people. Um, the biggest problem 
with Harry Truman on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, and it was only a little problem, was he wanted her to say no to the Russian-inspired economic and social rights, the right to work, the right to vacations, the right to a minimum wage, all of these things, which we think of as just human rights. And he said, no, no, those are Soviet-initiated, vote against them. And she said that she couldn't possibly do that because you can't talk human rights to people who are hungry. And if you want me to vote against that, I will resign. He didn't want her to resign. He said, follow your conscience. And so she supported all the human rights. And the Russians didn't vote against the Universal Declaration. So it happened. Um, and it's really interesting. How do we move forward? Well, we have to build movements. And we have to talk to one another. I said I would like to stop. Um, I mean, there's so many things I could say from the Tuskegee Airmen and Eleanor Roosevelt's incredibly important role in getting the Tuskegee Airmen not just in flight, but in battle. Um, and then Thurgood Marshall, who um, is appointed to the Supreme Court by Lyndon Johnson. It was Thurgood Marshall wrote that Eleanor Roosevelt, for the civil rights movement, for the NAACP, for everything they cared about, she was Lady Big Heart. She gave everybody hope. She spoke out. She spoke with us. She was on panels with us, and so on. And that's a very big part of the book. But I do want to um, refer to one particular book that she wrote in uh, 1940. Don't go away. Because it's so perfect for this moment. It's called The Moral Basis of Democracy. And she wrote it at night after all of her many 1940 events. And it's an extraordinary question that answers, what is, does democracy work? Well, I mean, what is this democracy and how do we get it to work? The Moral Basis of Democracy, beginning with the Magna Carta of 1215, we begin to have an inkling of democracy, and then we have the visionaries who give us the American Revolution, even though they are slave owners. They talk about how slavery, Thomas Jefferson, was the denial of the equality of man to deny equality was to lose the basis of democracy. And she goes on to be very clear. The 130 million people who make up our great nation come from every nation on the globe, Asia, Africa, Europe, Latin America. This truly makes us 
the melting pot of the world. We now face almost an entire continent of vast resources. But we have allowed a situation to arise where many people are debased by poverty or the accident of race and therefore have no stake in democracy. While others appeal to this old rule of the sacredness of property rights to retain in the hands of a limited number the fruits of the labor of many. Today, issues of economic opportunity and security define our problems. These are all Eleanor Roosevelt's words. It is often said that we are free, then sneeringly free to starve. This is not an amusement. Nobody can say the Indians or Negroes of this country are free. Racial prejudice enslaves and poverty enslaves. Some of us, she writes, have too much of this world's goods and we are thereby, thereby separated too widely from each other to appreciate daily hardships and sufferings people endure. Clearly, we do not completely practice the democratic way of life in our relationship to submerged people. Political democracy requires economic democracy. In other words, there won't be political democracy until everyone has education and a job and opportunity for creativity. Political democracy requires economic democracy while greed debases it. Either we make our economic system work for all of our people or we will lose essentially everything. We have not yet discovered the economic secrets of full employment and far too many are left with nothing to do and no wherewithal for living. We have been too devoted to the gods of mammon. Humanity must rise above purely selfish interest and take responsibility for one another. Democracy necessarily involves the spirit of social and economic cooperation. And I just think that, which is really the core of her vision and the core, it really is her creed um, to build up social consciousness and a sense of responsibility. We need a new national purpose that guarantees each individual a secure and meaningful life. New standards for good health, excellent education, equal opportunity. For democracy to work, Eleanor Roosevelt concludes, every individual needs to participate in the government and for the government to work it must be responsive to the people. And I think ultimately that is where we were in 1940 and that is where we are now. 
Eleanor Roosevelt would frequently say things like, I can give you 100% literacy and full employment. How? One teacher, five students. And that, to contemplate at a moment when they're closing, so many schools in the country. The University uh, UCLA has just closed recently, one of the best schools of journalism in the country. UCLA, um, in my opinion, except for Columbia, the best public school of you know, journalism in the country. How could they have closed it? Well, I mean, schools are just closing. And then everybody's worried about cutbacks and is CUNY, the City University of New York, the State University of New York, I don't know what's happening here in Virginia, but the cuts everywhere are really scary and worrisome. Um, for those of us who have been teaching for several decades, um, it's creepy that where our classes used to be limited to 10 or 15, they are now limited to 30 or 40. I mean, it's a different game. So uh, that's where we are in the U.S. at a time when, you know, we can think of the Green New Deal and have endless numbers of jobs for endless numbers of people and begin to recharge the New Deal um, and to recharge our commitment to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is 70 this year in December, December 10th. Um, so there's so much more to talk about, but um, I'll stop here and open it up to your questions and concerns. Thank you. No questions? Got to have questions. Thank you very kindly for your wonderful and insightful presentation. Uh, you ask a question about Eleanor Roosevelt's father dying at age 34, and how much would a person have to drink to die at age 34? I briefly worked for the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and I'd like to take a guess at that. From age 29, give or take a year, drinking daily a quart, give or take a pint, I would probably do that. <laughs> and then you mentioned uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's role with the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, and uh, I would like to just make a, a brief comment, and that would be that Having spoken with uh, Benjamin Davis Jr., the leader of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, he uh, wrote a book entitled uh, Benjamin Davis Jr., an American. I was, I was riding the subway one day and I saw this gentleman and I went over to him and I said, I'd like to shake your hand, sir. I think you're the greatest American I've ever met. And I'd like to ask uh, for some advice. And he said, well, a lady came up to me one day and she said, uh, do you know the, uh, 
the 11th commandment. And uh, he said, no, I'm not familiar with it. And she said, uh, do want to others, and you know how that goes. And of course, when he went to a West Point, he, no one spoke to him at West Point during his entire military studies there, except he went to an informal meeting once, and they were using the N-word down there and trying to figure out how to get rid of him. And yet he led those to Skegee Airmen. I asked him a question, how many bombers did we lose in World War II, uh, escorted by the Tuskegee Airmen that flew the Triangle from England, bombed Germany, refueled and back in Africa and did the circuit. And he said, none, we lost none. Lost several fighters, jet fighters uh, protecting them. And, uh, so here we have an example of your blood transfusion and the segregation there. And uh, the idea here of the great greatness of American blood is uh, deeply embedded in the words and actions of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt that you so valiantly and boldly carried to us today, and thank you very kindly. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Eleanor Roosevelt really did fight to get the Tuskegee Airmen off the ground because they were trained at Tuskegee and then they weren't sent off. And when she got a note from uh, Roscoe Brown, who subsequently taught at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, he wrote to her and said, do you know that we're just grounded here? We're not being used. Eleanor Roosevelt was outraged. And she got them in the air. Um, and that's sort of incredible. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, so my question is sort of related to her take and your discussion of you need to talk to the people who you don't agree with, basically, right? Um, but I think a lot of us are struggling with that right now, um, both our friends. And I mean, in many ways, she probably was a pariah to her social uh, set, right? What advice would she have for us to engage and have those discussions with our family members who we don't potentially agree with and also people who we don't agree with. I mean, many of us can do that in our work because we're required to be polite at work. But outside of work, <laughs> you know, we're not really required to be polite most of the time. <laughs> so what advice would, or suggestions would she have on that front? Well, I think, I mean, if you read her UN years when um, she's constantly surrounded by people she disagrees with, um, you know, the important thing is to listen and respond. Um, and one of, the, one of her mottos is, courage can be as contagious as fear. You know, we can't be afraid of each other. We have to see each other as human beings um, and be able to speak with each other. Um, it's harder when we get to some people who we don't want to speak to. I mean, I can imagine um, not wanting to speak to a whole lot of people these days. But um, for those of, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of very fortunate because I've taught at West Point and, I've, and I teach at John Jay where my students are fantastic. Um, and, you know, we talk. I, I pride myself on never having given a test in my life. All they have to do is disagree with me. 
and they have to read Howard Zinn, A People's History of the U.S. And then there are other things I give them to do, like they have to keep a journal. It could be a journal of their disagreements, but they have to watch Amy Goodman, Democracy Now. Well, that's, so we have fights, we have arguments, but we have to talk to each other. And um, we now have a club of most of my students are veterans, 600, we have a club of 600 veterans. And recently it's been turned into a club of veterans for peace. So we have to talk to each other. And there's one other, um, there are two other things that I urge them to do. One is an, uh, a link called commondreams.org. And commondreams.org is progressive news from around the country and around the world. Write it down. Commondreams. And it's really important because we need, you know, we're not getting the news in the mass media, um, in my opinion. But So where do you go for the news? Well, Common Dreams is one place. Portside is another. Um, you know, it used to be Bill Buckley was a third, but he's gone. And, you know, like that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. One of the unfortunate blemishes on President Roosevelt's record was his willingness to go mm -hmm. along with the internment of the Japanese Americans on the West Coast. <clears throat> I know that Eleanor was opposed to that, but I don't know too many of the details of the dynamics of how that affected their relationship. Could you explain a little bit on that? Well, she was really stunned. Nobody was prepared for that, um, for the internment of the Japanese. And what she did was she went to uh, Japanese camps, but more than she went to Gila um, and spoke to the people. But the most important thing she did was she encouraged everybody in the camp who wanted to join the military to join the military, men and women. So, you know, I mean, among the most decorated um, brigades were the Japanese American brigades. I mean, these were folks interned were American citizens, U.S. born American, Japanese American citizens. And then the other thing she did was to create fellowships and scholarships for students who wanted to go to colleges and universities, and she got them into, you know, into Radcliffe and into Bryn Mawr and into Smith. Um, she was amazing, and she did that. So, um, thank, you. thank you. Um, I have a question that's kind of similar, like, uh, like the dynamic of the relationship, like issues that might have uh, arisen. I can't hear you, sorry. Issues that might have arisen due to like uh, uh, disagreements they may have had politically. I know FDR was a Democrat, so a lot of his uh, political allies would have been from the South. I can't imagine he would have been too big of a proponent of civil rights, whereas Eleanor was a very large uh, proponent of that. Did he pretty much let her carry that torch on her own, or was that something he ever supported? Um, she was really angry that he wouldn't support an anti-Lynch bill. He, she really wanted him to speak out. Lynching is wrong, and he never did. Um, for other things, he, you know, uh, he said, okay, you're my eyes and my ears, you're bringing me what the people are saying, but no, I'm not going to speak out on this, and he just couldn't. Um, 
One of the most interesting things from my perspective, because I've had lots of differences with people I admire very much, who really were angry uh, when I wrote volume two, A Silence Beyond Repair, in which I talk about um, FDR's refusal to deal at all with the need to rescue um, Jews who were being slaughtered in Hitler's walk across Europe. And um, finally, I had dinner with a very good friend, Arthur Schlesinger, who wanted to explain to me why our disagreements were so intense. And we, we shared office space at the Graduate Center of the City University. And we would fight all the time. People were very amused by our fights. And, um, but we were friends. And so he, we had dinner. And he said, you really need to understand. Because Arthur was writing, FDR did everything possible to save the Jews. And you know, how can you say that? He did nothing at all, in my opinion. And he said, OK, I said everything possible. Look at it. Who's the Democratic Party? 30% of the US population are German Americans. The Democratic Party is made up of German Americans, Irish Americans, Italian Americans, and Southern Democrats. What was he going to do? There was no support to rescue the Jews. And that's true. And so, you know, for me, um, there is the Varian Fry effort in 1940. And even the Varian Fry, his trip to Marseille, where he saves about 2,800 people, the best and the brightest, you know, Hannah Arendt, uh, Albert Einstein, Max Planck, artists, writers. And how did he get there? How did Varian Fry get to Marseille? Well, at one point, I said to Trudel Lash, who is Joe Lash's wife, who is Gertrude van Adam Wenzel Pratt Lash. And this is very important. And I said to her on the deck of her home in Martha's Vineyard, we were friends. I said, what's up with nobody ever giving you credit for the Varian Fry rescue operation. And she banged her fist on the table and all the glasses flew off. And she said, don't write that. And I said, I'm going to write it. What's the story? And she didn't want me to write it, um, took a deep breath, said it was to protect her family. And initially, I thought she meant to protect her three children by Elliot Pratt. And of course, that was wrong, because Joe Lash did nothing to protect the children in his sort of tell-all books about their romance, which Eleanor Roosevelt gets all involved in. And then the children who dumped 10 boxes after Truda died, they wanted me to write about Truda, who indeed, if there's a writer in the room looking for a really good book to write, Truda Lash and Joe Lash, really, that would be a great book. Because Truda was a member of the German, American Friends of German Freedom. And she was a member of the German underground, the anti-Hitler underground. 
And in 1932-33, she's editor of an anti-Nazi paper. Um, the German, the Nazis destroy her newspaper, kill her friends who are editors, burn her home. Elliot Pratt is there, um, you know, proposing to her, they get married. Hitler comes to power in 33 and they come back to the United States where she becomes really a leader in the group of anti-Nazi Germans, the American Friends of German Freedom. And of course, she is responsible for the Varian Fry rescue operation. But when she said to protect her family, I learned she had two brothers who fought here and two brothers who fought there, and a mother who was such a Nazi, she would never meet Joe Lash, Trudeau's husband. Um, and it's a, a fascinating and bitter story. So, um, I don't know if I've answered your question. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I want to thank you for sharing all the insights that you have of Eleanor Roosevelt with us. It was really quite fascinating. I have two questions, if you'll indulge me. Uh, the first one, you've done such tremendous research about Eleanor Roosevelt and have learned many things about her. But if you had the opportunity to ask her two questions relating to things that you don't know or don't feel like you know well, what would those two questions be? And my second uh, question is, if she were with us today, what concrete steps or actions do you think she would take to try to reconcile um, the American people from where we, we are so divided right now? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I don't have two questions um, that I haven't asked her. I've had many conversations with her and she's told me what I need to know. Um, I very recently um, broke a bone in my foot because a box of Eleanor Roosevelt papers fell on me. And um, in that box, there were papers that I hadn't used sufficiently, including these FBI files that I've, um, so she, she lets me know what she, uh, <laughs> I've been fascinated by her great friendship with Esther Lape, L-A-P-E. And her great friendship with Esther Lape, who was a really brilliant political organizer and scholar. She taught at uh, Bonnet and she taught around the country before she became a political um, activist for peace and uh, national health care. And so it's Esther Lape, L-A-P-E, and there's no biography of Esther Lape <laughs> yet. Um, she is the creator of what we would now call single-payer health care. She wanted everybody covered beyond Medicaid and Medicare for all. Um, and it was supposed to go into the 1935 Social Security Act, and the AMA lobbied it to death. And then in 1958, when Eisenhower created the Health Reinsurance Act, which is all we've ever gotten, really, um, he asked Esther Lape and Eleanor Roosevelt to work with him and get that through, which they did. 
and Eisenhower gave the pen. He signed the Health Reinsurance Act with, uh, he gave the pen to Esther Lape at a press conference and she waved it in front of the reporters and said, now this represents just a puny little bone in the vertebrae of what I had in mind. <laughs> and here we are in the 21st century still getting ready for what she had in mind in the 1930s. So what would Eleanor Roosevelt do to reconcile um, the great, I mean, this man in the White House is trying to dismantle social security and the limited health care we have while other folks around the Green New Deal and the Bernie Sanders people and this new wave of young women and men who are taking over the house. I mean, there's hope. But Eleanor Roosevelt would say, be bold. Go door to door, block by block. We need to build movements. And we need movements for public education, excellent quality, free tuition, free tuition. Eleanor Roosevelt called for that in the 1940s. Um, and healthcare for all. So that's what she would say to deal with this. And I think this, it's happening. I think it's happening. People are moved to activism and they are getting bolder and bolder. We will bolder and bolder. Yeah, shoulder to shoulder, hearts open, fists high. Right. Yes. Uh, just, I would like to ask you, uh, I know there was disagreement between FDR and Eleanor. I want you to describe what you felt was the relationship between the two of them, both good and bad. I think they had an amazing relationship in that um, in terms of their, you know, at one point I wrote, I don't know if she's making love or keeping score um, <laughs> when it comes to her lovers. And, you know, but she had, you know, he had his needs and she understood that. Um, and their friendship beyond that was real. They had a partnership. She admired him. Um, she respected him, and he admired her, and he respected her. Um, at one point, it's very clear that he never thanks her for anything, even when he's using her words. In the most progressive speech he makes in 1944, he's using her words, but he never thanks her. And she, but she's delighted that he's giving her speech because it's the most important speech. It's the new New Deal. We have to have sufficiency. We have to have jobs for all. He's saying we have to end bigotry and discrimination. He's saying all the things she's been saying for 20 years. So that was, and when he passed, um, you know, she said all she's doing is continuing his legacy. She never took credit for what she did. And she didn't want anyone else to give her credit for what she did. She was incredibly modest that way. How did she help him with his medical problems while he was in the president's position? How did she help him through that? 
um, she was with him all the time, and she encouraged him. His mother said, oh, goody, you'll now become a man of leisure and come move back to Hyde Park. And Eleanor Roosevelt and their pal Louis Howe said, essentially, over their dead body, no, there's politics, and you will go right into the game and become what you wanted to become. And that's, you know, she really pushed him. Let me just say one thing. Um, after Lucy Mercer, I mean, she never got over, you know, that really stunned her. But then came Missy Lehand. And Eleanor Roosevelt treated Missy Lehand with great respect and high regard. And I have to say, one thing she was really grateful for Missy Lehand, who, you know, stayed up all night with FDR while he was drinking and talking, and Eleanor Roosevelt didn't have to. Imagine that. So, um, so I think she was grateful for Missy Lehand and um, probably all the other women in his life. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One more question? Yes. I'm a senior citizen. And I had an interesting experience in Washington as a member of, uh, as a teenager, member of uh, All Souls Unitarian Church. I got a call that they needed a waitress. And that was all the information I had. And I went up there and it was a luncheon given by Eleanor Roosevelt, which was integrated. And this was interesting that the only Washington was a city that was integrated. And it was interesting, the only place she could have such a luncheon was in the basement of a church when her husband was president. And uh, later on, when I went to uh, Connecticut and went to a PTA meeting where she spoke, there was an elderly black gentleman by himself in the back row. And I thought that was a real tribute to her that she had worked so diff so hard to uh, change things. Thank you very much. I think we forget how long Washington was completely segregated. Um, it was Eisenhower who uh, integrated the Capitol. He integrated public buildings, and he integrated um, the parks. Black people couldn't walk through Rock Creek Park until the 1950s after Eisenhower integrated the park. Um, so it, it's really shocking. Um, and, but he didn't integrate the restaurants. So restaurants in Baltimore and Washington were segregated right into the middle 60s. Um, Johns Hopkins had a bail fund for those of us who would sit in with our friends um, and get arrested. So you'd call up the history department and get um, bailed out by the history department. I mean, this is 1962, 63. It went on until, I don't know, 68. And I was really shocked when I went recently back to Hopkins, back to Baltimore, at how integrated um, the campus is now not just racially integrated, but boys and girls, men and women, I mean, students. It was really, it's really changed. But it took a very long time. And, you know, the, the fight isn't over, as we all, as we all know. Thank you. <laughs>